in India at the time of the Buddha about 2,600 years ago, they didn't have centralized governments. They didn't have welfare programs. So for support, when life got difficult, people took refuge in a local chief or a powerful person who could protect them in times of conflict or war. So there was this idea of going for refuge to a particular person, powerful person, and they owed that person allegiance. So this concept was already in existence at the time of the Buddha, and as he did with many conventional concepts of his time, he took that concept and twisted it or spun it in a way that leads to more freedom. So instead of taking refuge in a chief, he invited people to orient to his own awakening, to follow the teachings that led to that freedom, and to connect with other people who are also developing that same inner wisdom and compassion, that same transformative freedom. So these three refuges became known as the three jewels or the three treasures. And we get from those terms that they have immense value. So this term refuge, it also implies safety, security, shelter. And I think for us here today, it's fair to say that most of us have some degree of safety and security. We probably wouldn't even be able to be here. We're not living very marginalized lives. We're not living in war situations and so forth. So you, we might think, as I did when I first heard about these refuges, well, I'm fine. I can take care of myself. In fact, I'm pretty self-reliant and independent. I don't need refuge. I'm not some kind of refugee. But we only have to read the news to realize that we're actually facing more existential threats, I think, than, well, certainly in my lifetime. There's the climate crisis, pretty obviously. There are wars all around the world. The escalation of nuclear threat. And this is on top of our own vulnerability to illness, to aging, to injury. And the truth that every one of us here is going to die. So these are some pretty gross or obvious forms of what the Buddha referred to as dukkha. Dukkha commonly translated as suffering. But this term dukkha covers a whole range of intensity. So it's not just the kind of crises that I mentioned. It goes all the way through to just our more mundane, ordinary, everyday life challenges. And all the way through to that just kind of basic existential dissatisfaction. So I always like to check if that resonates at all. To see, are any of you sitting here right now 100% completely, absolutely happy, content, comfortable, and at ease? 100%. Anybody? Maybe there's a nanosecond, but then, oh, my back hurts, so I wish we could have a cup of tea. Or if only 
I'd had more chocolate cake before I came, or if I could have got my, when I get home, if only they'd stop going on and on about suffering, then I would be happy. (laughs) (laughs) So we recognize that if we really pay attention, there's always something that's not quite right that could be better. And most of the time, we don't really let that fully into our consciousness. We unconsciously, instinctively try to avoid experiencing dukkha. So coming back to this idea of taking refuge, after I got over my reaction to it, what I realized was that actually I was already taking refuge in all kinds of things using all kinds of strategies to try to avoid experiencing anything unpleasant. And again, I like to check, I don't think I'm alone in this. (laughs) From what I can tell, it's true for most people that we just, when we get stressed or distressed, we look for comfort, for solace, for escape, for refuge. And usually the kind of refuges that we turn to are actually not very helpful, at least not in the longer term. So I'll just name a few examples, see if any, if you recognize any of them. So taking refuge in busyness and overwork, constantly doing, being tyrannized by the to-do list so that we don't actually have to stop and think about the bigger picture of How are we actually living our lives? And what's the deeper purpose? So some people take refuge in substances, maybe food or alcohol or recreational drugs. There are other kinds of addictions these days to computers or sex or shopping or maybe relationships, romance, online dating or fantasies, distraction, using social media, entertainment, binging Netflix, constantly scrolling through our news feed or our social media. Anyone recognize one of those? (laughs) Funnily enough, and any that I've missed, like maybe, oh, my favorite strategy wasn't even named. (laughs) Any others you can think of? You can name them for a friend. Exercising, over-exercising, compulsive exercising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Someone over here. Oh, I say helping others. Yeah, helping others. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. compulsively helping others so you're not taking care of yourself. Yeah, thank you. So, just to be clear, you know, most of these things in and of themselves are not bad. But it's how we're relating to them that we want to bring awareness to. Because if we're using them as strategies to avoid being with reality, with the truth of how things are, then eventually they're going to let us down. They stop working. And in the meantime, we're missing a valuable opportunity to strengthen our capacity to relate more skillfully to Dukkha to do that before the inevitable bigger challenges come our way. So it might sound paradoxical, but taking refuge in the truth of our own vulnerability is actually the way to freedom. Because no matter how much money we spend, no matter how hard we try to protect ourselves, 
there's no guarantee that at some point we might still lose our home. We think of the people in Westport who are being flooded for the third time in a year. People whose homes are being swept away by landslides or fires. We can lose our homes, we can lose our possessions, we can lose our livelihoods, our jobs, our income, our partners, our family members, our friends. We lose our health. For sure, every one of us will lose our lives. So there's a lot of different ways that we're impacted by loss. And all of these teachings are really intended to address this profound vulnerability, this profound existential uncertainty. So over and over the Buddha encouraged us, instead of relying on external circumstances out there for security and happiness, instead we need to cultivate the inner qualities of heart and mind that allow us to be with this vulnerability because it's really only these inner qualities that are a reliable support in times of stress. So this is what the Buddha came to understand when he went through all those years of intensive practice that culminated in enlightenment, awakening. He saw that those other strategies at best, they're temporary, they give short-term relief, but many of them are actually toxic to our hearts and minds. If we look carefully, we can see that. They get in the way of clarity, of clear seeing. So the Buddha's teachings offer us a different kind of refuge. One that helps us to see through delusion and to wake up. And this is in fact the original meaning of the term Buddha. So the term Buddha actually means the awakened one. And when people would ask him, what are you or who are you? He would often just say, I'm awake. So when we're invited to take refuge in the Buddha, we're invited to orient to this development of our highest potential. So taking refuge in the Buddha is not about worshipping someone it's an invitation to cultivate that going inwards, just like he did, to deeply understand our hearts and minds so that we can live with more ease and freedom in the world. Not just for our own benefit, but for everyone around us too. So this ease and freedom that comes from living in alignment with the truth the truth of how things are, rather than how we wish they were or would like them to be, that comes from letting go of trying to manipulate the world out there and develop our inner relationship to things. So this is the Dharma, taking refuge in the Dharma, the truth of how things are. So as I said, Dharma means natural law, means truth, it means the teachings. And then we come to taking refuge in the Sangha, which is all of us who are trying to follow these teachings. So when we contemplate taking refuge in the Dharma, what actual teachings are we taking refuge in? So as I said, I hope to be able to focus on just two key sets of teachings. The first is the Four Noble Truths that I think all of you 
have at least some familiarity with. And the second is the four Brahmavihara heart qualities. So the qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So I'm hoping that by just bringing those two, you could, I'm doing this because it feels like they're two poles, two strands of teachings that will give us a way into taking refuge in the Dhamma. And I chose those two because very broadly we can see that they fit into this template or metaphor of the two wings to awakening. So I think most of you know I use that metaphor a lot. There's two wings to awakening, are wisdom and compassion. And the reason I use that metaphor so much is because it's very obvious we need both wings to be in balance if we're metaphorically going to fly. But somehow, perhaps because we're in the insight tradition, we tend to have put a lot more attention on the wisdom wing. And so I like to keep remembering, reminding the compassion wing includes all four Brahmaviharas, metta, kindness, compassion itself, appreciative joy, equanimity. So if these frameworks are new to you, don't worry about trying to get them all straight or remember what they are. I'm just giving you broad brush strokes here and we'll flesh them out over the next few weeks and hopefully things will start to fall into place. So I'm just going to give you a very quick run through of the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Ennobling Truths, as they're sometimes referred to. And actually, I'm not going to give it to you, I'm going to invite you to give it to me. So, as you know, I sometimes do these pop quiz things. <coughs> so if you know the list, anybody like to say what you understand the First Noble Truth to be? Suffering occurs. Suffering occurs. There is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. So I like, I'm always curious, when you hear that first noble truth, either now or the very first time you heard it, what was the effect? Did it have any effect? Was it like, so what? Or was it, yeah, or was it, ooh? Or some combination of all three? How does that land for you when you hear it stated pretty boldly, there is dukkha, unsatisfactory, stress, distress, suffering? I never was that, that inspired to hear it, but I seem to be having a bit of an epiphany about it at the moment. <laughs> you weren't inspired to hear it? No, no. But, but lately, just perhaps because I'm reading the um, film Moffat Rock Dancing of Life, Right. And it's about the four noble truths and um and I seem to be having a lot of suffering going on and and um, I'm thinking about it a lot and, and this this thing about how you respond to it, not how you react to it. Yes. Um, and just looking at it differently. Yes. And I thought it's incredibly useful. Beautiful. Yeah. So it's more resonant now as the truth, the reality of yes. dukkha kind of but encroaches. I my feelings when I first heard about it. Yeah. And it was a sort of a yeah. yeah. But, but now it's like, this is incredibly useful. Yes, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, similar. It's not on a conventional level inspiring. Yeah, anybody else? Do you mean, Liz, in the sense that it's like a normal part of living? Is that what... That 
Is that what you're saying? It is an important thing. In that sense, is that what you're yes. accepting that that's just yes. what life's like? I think sort of accepting it. I, yeah. I think that there's a sort of a subtle non-accepting yes. going on for most of us. Subtle. What's to me now is an accepting of, yeah. Yeah, this, yes. is, this is actually what it's about, and I might have been in denial that that was going on for myself some of the time. Yes. Not so much these days. <laughs> yes, because it has a way of um, slamming you. Yes, yeah, I can relate to that. Thank you. I think it's good to have that recognition that we all are in this together mm. in a way. There is suffering. And yes. It's part of life, and so therefore it's beautiful. It's good just to recognize it. Yes. I love what you said. We're all in this together, and it's part of life because. In some of the other communities, cultures, countries that I teach in, there's, there's this kind of peer group pressure to be successful, to be on top of your game, to be somebody, and anything that's suffering is somehow shameful, and you're a loser, and you just try to avoid, deny, repress, ignore, you know, gloss over it, and that makes people very alienated and isolated because they're not living in alignment with the truth. So That's why I like the primitive people, the people that sort of live as a village and we all help each other. I think I gave the example of Mexican students didn't believe in testing, they didn't know what that was. They helped each other in the test. Right, <laughs> yes. Did, explained to them that's actually cheating. Right. Because they had no recollection of what it is like to compete against each other. Yes. You know, it's like very different society better than the US society I grew up in, actually. Yes, very and different values. It yeah. certainly changes your way of thinking and who you are. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Okay, so second noble truth. And that's the third one. Yes, there's, there's a cause of suffering, cause of dukkha. Anyone know what that is? And the cause is craving. The cause is craving. You've been swatting. Oh, great, great. So you're, uh, yeah. You're and aversion. We one step ahead. Yes, you are. Okay, so this is good. So I'll move a little more quickly. So craving also translated literally means it's thirst. Mm. So again, it's that sense of something else. I want something else. I want more. Next, 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 next. <laughs> you know, want the next thing. But it's so, this can be aversion. Yes. I mean, that's... Yeah, um, when I first came across it, I liked the bluntness of it. Yes. It, it stripped everything away and I, you know, this is true. I, yes. I, I can make truth out of this or I, yes. for me, me and then, you know, the cause, all that logical, nice, you know. Yes. Want this, don't want that. Yes, you know, yes. Push, I pull. Everything that, you know, that mean that's probably <laughs> yeah. everybody else. Yeah. But you know, it's either or, you know. Yeah. Is there you know, Yeah. And it follows logically it's, that it, you yeah. know, that, that we get to next. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So maybe there's a way in the middle. 
maybe or maybe there's a mm. balance or a, a, a place yes. between it's not all craving and not all aversion <laughs> so now that's shading into the third noble yeah. truth yeah mm. so the third noble truth there is an end to dukkha, yeah. It's possible to end it by releasing craving and resisting. Got it? <laughs> Pretty simple. But, and we can know that intellectually. The remedy is the complex part. The remedy is yeah. the complex part. So <laughs> yeah, fourth noble you truth. Stop there. Yeah, you what's, know, the, bit more. The, what's um, the fourth noble truth? The um, the cure for suffering is the eightfold noble path. Yes, beautiful. Do you care to name the eight in order? Um, <laughs> right view, attention, right speech, right action, right. Oh, slow right down, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> what? Say again. Right, right view. Right view. Right intention. Right intention. Right speech. Right speech. Right action. action. Um, right mindfulness. No, right livelihood Give first. <laughs> right. Yeah, livelihood then. Effort and then mindfulness and concentration. concentration samadhi brilliant you have all been studying pretty hard <laughs> impressive so these are the this is the framework and if again for some of you this is seeming a bit abstract or not yet clear it might be a good time to switch to the other set of four, which is the four Brahmaviharas, beginning with kindness. So kindness, just a very general goodwill, friendliness, benevolence, warmth, you could say. And then when that turns towards what's difficult or challenging or painful, it flowers as compassion the ability to meet suffering not with resistance or feeding it but just that open accepting warm connection together with the wish for that suffering to be released so this is what prevents compassion from burnout or empathy fatigue is that we're simultaneously coming close to the suffering and where we can, doing what we can to help relieve it. Then when metta turns to the other side, towards what's going well, it flowers as mudita, appreciative joy. And then compassion and appreciative joy come together as equanimity. And that's the ability to stay steady and balanced in the face of the whole spectrum of what life offers us. So just to touch in a little more to metta, as I think most of you know, traditionally that's taught by reciting phrases of well-wishing. For example, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, 
may I know peace. And the training is to offer those phrases to ourselves, then to friends and people we care about, then to neutral people, and then to so-called enemies, and then ultimately to all beings everywhere. Now, that might sound like an intimidatingly high expectation to be able to offer that kindness without exception. So it's really good to keep in mind that this is a training, like all aspects of the Buddha's teachings, it's a gradual development and it's something that we cultivate and strengthen through our meditation practice. Not only through our meditation practice, but throughout the day, as often as we remember, just to incline the heart and mind in that direction of warmth and kindness. Now, I, I said incline the heart and mind because on one level it's obvious that forcing ourselves to be kind, to feel kind, is going to be counterproductive. And I think this is one reason why for some people, including me uh, at first, meta practice, I found it incredibly difficult. And it took me a while to realize it was because I was trying to manufacture some kind of fake kindness that wasn't authentic. And so it just left me feeling irritated and resentful and frustrated and inadequate. And it was a while before I realized that what there were a couple of things that shifted my relationship to meta practice. And this took at least a couple of years from what I can remember. I really hated meta practice for a long time. And it wasn't until I understood that all of these Brahma-Vihara practices are known as purification practices, which means that they're designed to show us what gets in the way, to show us the obstacles. So if we sit down thinking we're going to practice metta and we find ourselves bored out of our brains or restless or consumed with irritation and resentment or just nauseated by the sheer goodness of it all, that's actually a sign that it's working. That those hindrances, obstacles, unless we see them, we can't do anything about them. So rather than giving up, the invitation is to say, okay, this is where the edge of my practice is. This is what I can work with. And then the second thing I needed to understand is that these qualities are actually the natural state of our heart and mind when it's free from the visiting afflictions. So in the Buddha's understanding, these afflictions are visiting. They're not inherent to who we are. We're not fundamentally flawed or fatally aversive or permanently whatever. These are visiting states that we've acquired. And so when we release those states, what's left are these skillful qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. You can also say generosity and clarity and all the other skillful qualities we've been cultivating. So it's not about trying to make something happen. It's about releasing what gets in the way and letting that natural beauty shine through. 
So just to close so we have time for discussion, as far as I know, there are in the teachings, the formal teachings, I was going to say official teachings, I don't know that there's a direct correlation between the Four Noble Truths and the Four Brahmaviharas, other than the fact that there are four of them. But as I've been exploring them, when we look at the First Noble Truth, just that truth that there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. Just that understanding, as I think Francois mentioned, can bring this kindness. We're all in this together. This is the human condition. And when we see it clearly, I don't know about for you, but there is a natural sense of softening or opening, or recognition, or warmth, all of those that are in the terrain of metta. So we could explore pairing the first noble truth with the first Brahmavihara of metta. It provides, metta provides a very useful resource that supports the heart and mind to turn towards the truth of suffering and not be overwhelmed or repelled by it. Okay, so that's probably enough from me for this evening. Thank you so much for your attention. And I just thought to have some time just to hear any responses to anything that's been offered, any questions or comments, whether it does or doesn't resonate with your own experience. Thank you.